Well, good morning. If you drive a car around the parking lot, um, it will seem okay. You will not know what that car is really like until you run it at 65 miles an hour on a bumpy road. If you put around the harbor in your little boat or your little ship, <clears throat> your boat will seem probably okay and you will not know the integrity of that boat until you hit a storm, until the waves bash it. You will not know the quality or the depth <clears throat> of your discipleship until you are told no, until you're offended. And then those weaknesses will show. That is also true with the society. When there's prosperity, when there's a lack of war or conflict, it all seems quite safe and secure. It is not until you're stressed and pressurized that you learn where your leaks are. The stress of this last year <laughs> has clearly illuminated for all of us the big difference between godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. Between, as it were, the secular and the sanctified. Now, you all have your very own personal examples of things that you think are absolutely ridiculous that have come up this past year. I don't need to give you any more. You can name them, in fact, you're giggling because you can name them now, right? Things that are just like, what are they thinking? <clears throat> and something else that's happened in the past year is that you can more clearly see that the world's view of your faith, if you're a believer, is not favorable. So we're going to read in our passage and we're gonna find in our passage Three reasons to calmly stand firm when the world thinks you're an idiot. <clears throat> Open to 1 Corinthians, first chapter. We're going to start in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of God the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning, the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, 
Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. <clears throat> not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. <clears throat> For I decided to, do, to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Now this is a very practical lesson for us now. But this passage that we just read is a part of a bigger one, which is part of a bigger one, which we will circle back to. In our passage here, Paul uses identical words which have two different meanings. You kind of heard it when we read this. So we're going to be clear from the start. We're going to get this right from the start. <clears throat> um, we're going to lay out those meanings and make that clear. From the first four words of Proverbs 4, 5, which says, acquire wisdom, exclamation point, acquire understanding, exclamation point. Okay, so what do we know? We know that wisdom is good. It is to be acquired. We know that um, knowledge or insight is good. It's to be acquired. We would also learn that we don't have it naturally. We've got to acquire it. <clears throat> but what I want you to see is that they are two different things. They cannot operate independently. If you have the wisest man in the world, full of godly wisdom, till he overflows, say, Philki. And he's presented with a problem in church world that is gnarly and difficult. If he knows nothing of that situation, those, none of the facts, none of the interactions, none of the relationships, all that wisdom that he has cannot be imparted in that situation. On the other hand, if you have some situation over here where there's a member of this group that knows all the intricacies and all the relationships and everything and all the history, and they don't have any wisdom, 
That's just as worthless, isn't it? Those two have to operate together. They cannot be independent. It's like this. I think it, knowledge and understanding, biblically, is knowing what the function of pants and shoes is. Okay? Wisdom, which is doing the right thing after you know the facts, is knowing that first you put on your pants and then you put on your shoes. That's the difference. You can't have one without the other. Now, we have to look at the two wisdoms. Um, <clears throat> there are two wisdoms that God talks about. Different phrases, worldly wisdom, the wisdom of the wise, cleverness, versus godly wisdom. But in our passage, he only uses one word, so we have to be careful of that. So let's look at the three reasons. The first reason to calmly stand firm in this crazy world is that, from verse 1, 18 through 19, God said that he would destroy the world's wisdom. Verse 18, <clears throat> for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the understanding of those who un have understanding, I will confound. Paul quotes Isaiah to them. To the unsaved world, that's the perishing, to the people who don't know Christ. The gospel or the word of the cross is foolishness. Now, foolishness is a word that has lost a little of its oomph over the years. We tend to think of it as goofy or silly or kind of not the smartest thing in the world. But the weight of that insult is much deeper. <clears throat> It is a caustic, deep indictment. That's why I use the word idiot. That fits our vernacular. That is a more accurate understanding of that word. The Hebrew actually leans to moron, if you would prefer that. You take your pick, but feel the punch of it. <clears throat> we who are not perishing, us Christian folks, we do believe some pretty amazing things, don't we? Um, it is not amazing that the world thinks we're off our rocker. We believe in angels and demons. We believe that there are spiritual battles in the heavenly places that make Lord of the Rings look like a comic book. We believe that this powerful, omnipotent God crafted from chaos an intricate, amazing, fantastic world and created us. That's what we believe. To the world, it's like, they, they don't have a file for that. It's crazy. The unsaved world has always, always, always relegated the idea that someone could die in your place for your sins and that raise again from the dead was absolutely moronic. That's not a new understanding. That's from day one. 
That is completely, think it's nuts. Okay. I guess I can kind of understand that. It would be kind of amazing. But I want to te- talk to you who are younger and older. Those of us who are older, you know who you are. When we grew up, um, we lived in a world that, where the church, even though she was faltering, even though she had her flaws, she was not disrespected in the public venue. She was not assaulted. She had a position. If you were to use a Bible verse when I was a kid, it would not be considered hate speech. It was just a very different world. So that's why we understand why some of our older folks get alarmed when they see what's going on. Um, I think there has been more open and violent anti-Semitism in the past two months than there has been in any 10 years before this period. It's not going really well. But our passage comforts us and will strengthen us in the face of that belittling antagonism which is going to come. It's what God promised. Both Testaments, old and new, God repeatedly, by the way, not just in these verses, repeatedly stated very plainly that mankind's allegedly brilliant thoughts and opinions and plans and systems will be undone, will be destroyed. Says it over and over. Before, I told you this passage is kind of in the middle just before it, in 1 Corinthians 6, 1, 6, it says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not wisdom of the age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. And after it, in 3.19, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it's written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. That is the system that is ultimately going to be shown to be idiotic, foolish. That is a promise. So God's promised us that. It's a promise he's made. I'm going to destroy this. Now, in verse 20 through 29, he proves his case. He didn't just tell us, he shows us. Number two, God shows us how worldly wisdom is confounded. Verse 20, where's the wise person? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world as if already? Paul talks to them about something that's happening outside their walls, but they know of. He's talking to them about what for us now are industry leaders or academic leaders or journalists or pundits or political parties, bloggers, talking heads, influence. Those were the same people that were, that are making opinions today, that are saying things today that Paul was referring to in their day. Same folks exactly. Less electronic media, okay? You can make an idiot of yourself publicly to millions of people with just a click. Back then, you had to work harder at it. But they're the same people. 
Now, I want you to look at his reference to the scribes here. The Corinthian church was a mess. Jewish believers, Greek believers, Gentile believers, all kinds of cultures, it was a mishmash that was the problem. That was the motivation for the letter, those divisions. <clears throat> but I want to drill down to the scribes because for the Jewish believers, the scribes were still an important presence. They were still an important part of their life. To the Gentile believers, the philosophers that they were very proud of, that's those guys' influence. They all had their kind of background from this. <clears throat> the scribes were the acknowledged leading authorities on Scripture, were they not? They were supposed to be the pinnacle of scriptural interpretation. Yet, when presented with the miracles, the fulfilled prophecies of Jesus Christ right in front of their face, they missed it. They rejected it. Now these new believers who have found out Jesus was who he said he was. He has changed me. He did fulfill the prophecies. I know people who saw these miracles. They knew the scribes really blew it. It's a great example. It's something from their history they would get. <clears throat> Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 25, this is where I get a little excited. For the foolishness of God is wiser than mankind, and the weakness of God is stronger than mankind. That, ladies and gentlemen, is hyperbolic sarcasm. Is there any weakness in God? No, but it's stronger than man. Is there any foolishness in God? Not even a little, eh? But it's more wise than mankind. I love Paul. I have a spiritual gift of sarcasm. <laughs> and that's just another reason why I, I love this. Um, <clears throat> do you see the difference he's saying? You see what he's, he's comparing human wisdom to God, to God's wisdom? It's like, we don't even have a scale for this. That's what he's saying there. It's awesome. Then, so Paul's taught them from outside the walls, he turns it inside the walls in verse 26. For consider your calling to Christ, brothers and sisters, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, so that he may nullify what's God. Um, so let's extend that to us. <clears throat> Are we not the same? Does, does Canyon Bible Church of Prescott have any royalty? Raise your hand, we'll kiss your ring. 
No, no royalty, okay. Any leaders, any, any world leaders, any celebrities? Anything of that sort? Are we particularly special, smart, attractive, or wonderful? And the answer, except for you personally, is no. Everything that we have of value is given to us by God. We are the weak things now that shame the world. We are the knots that nullify what is, just like they were. We are adopted into a family that the world has not and never will triumph over. And none of that power comes from us. We are an extension, therefore, of God's destruction of worldly wisdom by our very presence here. <clears throat> so take some courage in that. You are part of his body, a group, a community. If you are a believer, that, forget the mainstream media, that hell itself will not prevail against. That's pretty good. And if you want some more encouragement on that, come up to me and explain to me why, why Israel is still in existence. Why is, is, why is Jerusalem not a glass parking lot? She is in the middle of seething enemies and has been from day one. And those of us who are older actually remember or we've read a book about times when there is no earthly reason why Israel should be here today. But there she is. And she thrives. Why is that? Because God said so. Because God promised he would watch after her. He would preserve her. Just like he promised the church he would preserve. That should be an encouragement. By the way, if any of you who aren't world leaders today become world leaders, don't bet against Israel. It's a bad bet. So we know that God has promised he would destroy worldly wisdom. We see just in the church today as then how he undoes worldly wisdom with our very presence. And the third reason to stay calm is found in very, 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 very ancient history. God, number three, God planned long ago that man's intellect would never embrace the most important knowledge. <clears throat> I'm going to take you back to verse 21 in our passage. For since in the wisdom of God, who's responsible, the world did not know God through wisdom. See that? God determined that we were not going to figure it out intellectually. Since that is true, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. See how the words get mixed? Through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And then we skip down, I'm going to skip you down to two, verse seven, where it says, 
but we impart a secret and his hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages. What's that mean? I want you to listen. Actually, turn. Turn to Proverbs 8, verse 22. In Proverbs, wisdom, which is rife in Proverbs, of course, the wisdom literature, wisdom is personified. That means she is displayed as a person, a lady to wit, who is strong, she's hospitable, she's inviting, she is actually attractive and huggable. We're supposed to cleave to her. And that word is is not like kissing your sister. Okay? It's more than that. She is quite the lady. Well, that lady tells us a story here. She tells her story. Listen to her story. The Lord possessed me, that's wisdom, at the beginning of his work. The first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made, the, made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Do you see that picture? This was before anything. Wisdom, as if she were a lady, a companion, rejoiced. She saw in an inhabited world and the children of man. Well, they didn't exist at that moment, did they? It's like she saw what God was doing and went, they're going to love this. This is awesome. And she tells us this story. And I think it was then that God determined how he was going to save us. But he did say that the knowledge of God would not, N-O-T, not come from our intellect, not from our natural wisdom, but rather only through what? The amazing message of the cross of Christ, the gospel. That's it. Says it in Ecclesiastes 8.17. Then the preacher says, I saw all the work of God. I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. 
However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So God put a limit on our wisdom, our natural wisdom, just like he put a limit on the seas. I think maybe at the same time. Why did he do that? Well, I don't know. I don't pretend to tell you what God thinks. But I'll tell you something that's pretty amazing about what that says, about our salvation. If we cannot figure it out, if I can't open my Bible and go, oh, wow, I read John. It says I should repent. I think that's a great idea. I will. That's not possible without the Spirit of God moving in you. Then who is responsible for you going to heaven? It's God. God saves sinners. Sinners don't save themselves. Well, who gets the glory for that? God. And that's a good reason right there, isn't it? Fallen man can't get it. Can't get what is most important, the gospel. And if fallen man cannot get what is most important, what is he doomed to get? Something that is not the most important. If he cannot grasp the all of God, he is doomed to be stuck with something, limited to something that is essentially non-essential. Is that a word? And that's what we're seeing. Just past our passage, Paul says it again, and this will help you. When you, when you preach the gospel to somebody who's really smart, and you lay it out really well, and they just, they just don't seem to get it, it's not because they're dumb. It's because 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And here it is. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They do not have a file for that. So, God said he'd destroy it. He's shown us how he, how he is destroying it with our very presence. And we can take courage in the fact that he determined to do exactly that before the world was even created. So I have four applications to this. Four takeaways for you. Number one, don't be alarmed when the world thinks you're a moron. Okay? We might need to be alarmed if they think we're not. That is the natural progression. That's part of the persecution we were promised. Another way to say that is don't be upset when the blind guy does not like the color of your tie. You can't see it. You can't expect them to see that. And don't be arrogant with that either. 
They are blind. When I... I face this in myself. When you talk about evolution, you go, okay, this is what I believe about creation. This is what the Bible says. Okay, and you believe... I'm saying to my non-Christian friends, you believe that if you throw a toy box out in the junkyard and you wait 17 million years, you'll end up with Disneyland. (laughs) But that's not gracious, is it? Someone who is facing that can't really, if if we're going to reject God, we really can't except creation, we've got to come up with something else. So, I have to be careful not to be snarky with that. For these people that can't see, I wouldn't, if you had a blind person, genuinely blind, you wouldn't make fun of them because they couldn't see, that'd be horrible. And yet, is that not what I'm doing? If I'm snotty with people who chastise my beliefs, even though I think they're really unreasoned? It is. That's not grace. That's I'm preaching to myself there. Number two, since God will destroy the world systems, the worldviews, all that stuff, he's going he's gonna to trash it. That means that job is taken. Okay? That means you and I don't need to apply for that. That's kind of an important one. Listen to verse 17. We're going we're to prove this. Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, but not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That verse shows us that we can, if we rely on our own thinking, our own charisma, our own study, our own education, all those things, if we rely on those, we make void the cross of Christ. What? We can very easily create our own homegrown, Christianity-flavored worldly wisdom, can't we? Sounds good, sprinkled with Bible verses, all those things, but not the power of God. So we don't want to just think outwardly on this. Paul was attentive to this in his own life, in his own preaching. Remember I told you, What is knowledge? What is wisdom? Wisdom is doing the right thing once you know the facts. Here's Paul. He knows he can wow them. I'm wowed. You know those in Hebrews, in Corinthians, where he goes to the if this, logical, just mic dropping, oh yeah, how can you not see this? It's awesome. I'm a truth guy, right? I'm like, I'm going to get that. I need to be more grace guy. But it's, it's incredible. Paul knows he has that ability, I think. I think he knows he can wow them with that. He never does. He's always humble. 
Why doesn't he do that? Because he's wise. He knows that fact. So what does he do? He sticks to the one thing he's supposed to preach. The one thing that Christ himself gave him to do, which was what? Preach Christ crucified. That's a real good example of wisdom right there. Number four, human-based philosophy is always, always, always antagonistic to revelation. It's always antagonistic to scripture. We, can, we just need to set it aside. Now, it contains truth, doesn't it? Isn't, the, isn't Satan's, one of his best techniques is to sprinkle lots of truth in with that lie? Happened in Genesis 3, happens all the time. That's true, that's true, that's true. I got the hook in, and then we deliver the lie. So there is truth in, in human thinking. Yes, there is. How do you discern that? Here's a way to sort that out biblically. Those truths are true. Are they connected to Christ? Or another way to say that is there is a truth, and a truth here, and a truth here, but there is the truth of Jesus Christ. So if there's a connection there, it validates those. Okay, those are right. But if there is not a connection, that's a lesser thing. That's going to mislead. That's not going to be the end all, is it? And that is essentially all of philosophy. Why would you sift through a pile of wheat and chaff when you can have the pile of wheat? Look at, look at the description Paul gives about human wisdom and God's wisdom. Why am I concentrating on this one? We have in our living room a couple things, actually more than a couple. We have a big screen TV and we have some building blocks that are made of wood. And the building blocks in the Penner household are little, they have little letters and numbers and stuff. And we use them and we make phrases and we say things to each other and some of them are nice and they're, they're all nice. Um, <laughs> we have a good time with our building blocks. And I was looking at this scene and I see this big screen TV and these building blocks. And they said at the time, he is risen. It was right before Easter. That is a really good picture of human wisdom and godly wisdom. That big screen TV is pretty intricate. It has a lot of things that need to happen before it works. It has to have electricity. It can bring me all the really amazing things of the world and all the sewage of the world right there in that one screen. It shows me things that might be real and a whole lot of things that aren't real. It's got all the essence of human philosophy and wisdom in it. It's all right there. Now, you and I are more like the dumb things, the building blocks. We're, we're wooden. Okay? Simple. 
You knock over the big screen TV, it's done. You knock over us, we gather them up and put them back on the shelf, and we say the same message. And nothing's going to interfere with what we do there. We're simple. We're not intricate. It's a good picture. But the real picture of this passage is not about wisdom, is it? The context of the passage, which I would be remiss if I ignored for you, is divisions in the church. Why'd those happen? We got all these different people, different thoughts, human wisdom, all this stuff. Paul cuts through it and says, human wisdom's gonna be gone, guys. Let it go. What's the unifying thing with you? What's the one thing that's gonna keep you together? What's the one thing that keeps us together? You guys are as different as the day is long. Why do I love you all? Paul was teasing him. He's like, you're not special. How come I think you're special? How come I think about you? Why do I wake up at night about you? It's because we're brothers and sisters. Because God put us into that family. It was the cross of Christ that unifies us and nothing else. That was the context of the passage. What's the most important thing? What does Paul solely preach on? Jesus Christ and him crucified. It says that Jesus is the wisdom of God. Jason, next week, is going to preach to you on a book by Michael Reeves. Um, it is a really good book. And I'm going to tee him up for next week by reading some things to close us that Mr. Reeves wrote in his book. He quoted other people. But the essence is this. We can see that the world is falling apart. We, we can see that it is antagonistic to us as Christians. Those of us who are older have not seen that, although that is the experience of our brothers and sisters in Christ for 2,000 years. That was a short reprieve. We're coming back to the norm. Is that going to phase us? No. God's going to take care of us in that. But that's one thing. What's the most important thing? Why, why do we not preach what Brad thinks or what Jason thinks? Why do we work so hard just to preach, just to say what God says? Because that's the essence. That's the important thing. That's the power. That's where the wisdom is. It's not us. That's why our church will survive. Not because we're smart 
or because our ecclesiology is good or because our theology is impeccable. None of those things. It's because He will unify us and He will bring us through whatever it is that He's got in store for us. He will save us from sloped floors. <laughs> but listen to what Mr. Reeves says. As John Calvin put it, while in all the creatures, indeed both high and low, the glory of God shines, that's true. Nowhere has it shone more brightly than in the cross. The cross is the hour when the Son of Man was glorified. The cross is the tipping point of history. There, here's his quote, as in a magnificent theater, the inestimable goodness of God is displayed before the whole world. There the fearfulness of God in all his great justice and mercy is most clearly and profoundly displayed. Thus, the old Scottish theologian John Brown could write in his commentary, nothing is so well fitted to put the fear of God into the heart as an enlightened view of the cross of Christ. There shines spotless holiness, inflexible justice, incomprehensible wisdom, omnipotent power, holy love. None of these excellencies darken or eclipse the other, but every one of them rather gives a luster to the rest. They mingle their beams and shine with united eternal splendor on the just judge, the merciful father, the wise governor. Nowhere does justice appear so awful or mercy so amiable or wisdom so profound. So that's what we're all about. If you're in here and you don't know what that means, but there's a tug, then talk to somebody. You throw a rock in here, you're going to hit somebody who will help you but don't walk away from that. Just like Paul said, that's the most important thing for us. It is the most important thing for you. We want you to have that. We want the whole world to have that. But we're going to be fine. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you <clears throat> so much for all the gifts you've given us and the wisdom, your wisdom that you've made available to us for your power in our lives and just, Lord, for saving us. Um, nothing we did, nothing we figured out. Um, we just brought nothing to this party, Lord, and yet you are gracious and you reached down and you brought us from death to life. You are greatly to be praised for that and we are thankful. Lord, um, we get distracted. The world will distract us. And we ask that as we deal with one another and we respond to our friends and 
people we meet in the day who may or may not know you, that, um, that cross of Christ permeate our thoughts. That it indeed changes everything for us. That we see the lens of other people, that we're gracious to them and not mean to them because they're antagonistic to us or even antagonistic to you. But we see them as lost and in need of you and stumbling in darkness. You, you pictured that so well, Lord, and we want to we want to be your servants. Thank you for your, as Mr. Reeves says, inestimable grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen.